This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. Today's Jazz Beat podcast focuses on Bob Dylan, this year's winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, and a jazz-oriented look at his memoir, Chronicles. Congratulations to Bob Dylan as this year's winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature. When I heard the news on the day of the announcement, I immediately thought well of the Nobel Committee for honoring a literary figure whose work is widely known, and a musician so deeply tied to the word through oral tradition, folklore, popular culture, and the Holy Bible. I'm in ready accord with David Haydu, who told the New York Times, it's partly in recognition of the whole tradition that Bob Dylan represents, so it's a retroactive award for Robert Johnson and Hank Williams and Smokey Robinson and the Beatles. One wonders if the Nobel tops the honor Dylan received in 2012 when President Obama presented him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. At the time, Obama said, Bob's voice, with its weight, its unique, gravelly power, redefined not just what music sounded like, but the message it carried. Ironically, for a man of words, Dylan's willingness to attend the Medal of Freedom ceremony at the White House, but not the Nobel event in Stockholm, may be that the former didn't require him to say anything, while the custom at Stockholm is for recipients to give an address, and that may be a ritual too formal and scrutinized for Bob. As of this date, Dylan says he'll write something for someone else to deliver at the event, and that Patti Smith will attend and sing Our Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall. Dylan may be a man of the word, but when he speaks in public, he's behind a wall of amplified guitars and dim lights. Albeit, he spoke last year at a Music Cares event sponsored by the Grammy Foundation, but the takeaway from that was Dylan extolling Billy Lee Riley's rockabilly classic Red Hot, and it'd have to offer more than that at Stockholm. The Nobel Prize Committee cited Dylan for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition, whereas the White House hailed him for the message his music carries. However, when it comes to Bob Dylan, message is a complex thing. The one-time Greenwich Village folkie long ago rejected the notion of himself as a protest singer representing the civil rights or anti-war movements, and in that he can be seen as an American artist resisting the requirements of ideology and collectivist thinking. 
I hear Dylan's quintessential American voice as twofold. His fierce individuality reflects the drive to go one's own way. And in drawing on both the canon of Western literature and the American vernacular, he's blurred what Lawrence Levine calls the highbrow-lowbrow dichotomies of American culture. It's from there that Dylan's message emanates, rocks, and resounds. Well, it ain't no use sit and wonder why, baby. Maybe you don't know by now. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. It'll never do somehow. When your rooster crows at the break of dawn. Look out your window and I'll be gone You're the reason I'm traveling on But don't think twice, it's all right While the Nobel honors Dylan for his brilliance and innovation as a songwriter, his literary gifts are also evident in the superb memoir he published in 2004. I reviewed Chronicles Volume 1 for Downbeat back then and noted that while I'd spent many an hour listening and reading and contemplating the enigmatic voice of my generation, I was completely surprised by the degree to which jazz figures in the 293-page prose epic. Ironically, it's Dylan more than any other artist. The Beatles are a close second, but their music got deep after they'd met Bob whose work eroded the status of jazz as the music of a hip elite in the post-World War II years. So while he'll never be regarded as a contributor to jazz, the music had a profound impact on him personally. Once he arrived in New York in 1961, Dylan became immersed in the Greenwich Village folk scene, but jazz was all over Lower Manhattan, too. He credits folk icon Dave Van Ronk, the so-called mayor of McDougal Street, were taking him around to the Village Vanguard, the Village Gate, and other venues where Dylan says, I got to see a lot of the jazz greats close up. He recounts playing the spiritual The Water is Wide with the avant-gardist Cecil Taylor, who he says could play regular piano if he wanted to. And at a venue that he recalled as a creepy but convenient little coffee house on Bleecker, he played with Billy Higgins and Don Cherry of the Ornette Coleman Quartet. It's worth remembering that Dylan's early producer at Columbia was Tom Wilson, a black Texan who founded Transition Records in Boston in 1956. Wilson produced Cecil Taylor's debut release, Jazz Advance, and sessions on Sun Ra and Youssef Latif. Dylan recalls seeing Thelonious Monk at the Five Spot, and he says, 
Monk was in his own dynamic universe even when he dawdled around. Even then, he summoned magic shadows into being. Sometimes he'd be in the five spot in the afternoon sitting at the piano all alone, playing stuff that sounded like Ivory Joe Hunter, a big half-eaten sandwich left on top of his piano. I dropped in there once in the afternoon just to listen, told him that I played folk music up the street. We all play folk music, he said. mentions numerous jazz records, including fairly obscure Duke Ellington works like Taurus Point of View and The Tattooed Bride, and Gil Evans's recording of Leadbelly's Ella Speed. He says, if I needed to wake up real quick, I'd put on Swing Low Sweet Cadillac or The Umbrella Man by Dizzy Gillespie. Hot House by Charlie Parker was a good record to wake up to. There were a few souls around who had heard and seen Parker play, and it seemed like he had transmitted some secret essence of life to them. writes rapturously over Harold Arlen, Harry Belafonte, and Frank Sinatra. Of Arlen, he says, In Harold's songs, The Cosmic Somewhere Over the Rainbow, I could hear rural blues and folk music. Dylan's obvious models were Woody Guthrie, Hank Williams, and Muddy Waters, but he says, I could never escape from the bittersweet, lonely, intense world of Harold Arlen. Of Harry Belafonte, he writes, He had ideals and made you feel that you're part of the human race, that rare type of character that radiates greatness, and you hope some of it rubs off on you. You know he never took the easy path, though he could have. I don't know anyone who anticipated Dylan's recent albums of Sinatra standards, but he was downright hyperbolic about Sinatra in Chronicles. Sinatra's recording of Ebb Tide elicits this tribute. I could hear everything in his voice, death, God, the universe, everything. 
first the tide rushes in plants a kiss on the shore then rolls out to sea and the sea Even though Miles Davis's Bitches Brew wasn't released until five years after Dylan went electric in 1965, he relates the controversy he instigated to the one surrounding Miles going electric. Dylan describes Bitches Brew as a piece of music that didn't follow the rules of modern jazz, which had been on the verge of breaking into the popular marketplace until Miles's record came along and killed its chances. Miles was put down by the jazz community. I couldn't imagine Miles being too upset. Dylan's notion that jazz was on the verge of a popular breakthrough suggests he's compressed the timeline between the mid-60s success of songs like The Girl from Ipanema and Hello, Dolly, and Miles Davis's late 60s innovations in jazz-rock fusion. Not surprisingly, he's passionate about Robert Johnson, devoting several pages to the mythical bluesman and the stunning impact of hearing King of the Delta Blues singers, the 1962 album reissue of Johnson's 1936 and 37 recordings. One example of how little Columbia expected from the album is that it was released in a historical series they called Thesaurus of Classic Jazz. Dylan writes, From the first note, the vibrations from the loudspeaker made my hair stand up. When Johnson started singing, he seemed like a guy who could have been sprung from the head of Zeus in full armor. The songs weren't customary blues songs. They were perfected pieces. They were so utterly fluid, short, punchy verses that resulted in some panoramic story. Fires of mankind blasting off the surface of this spinning piece of plastic. Upon seeing the photographs of Johnson that were first published in the early 1990s, he says he looks nothing like a man of stone, no high-strung temperament, wearing an unusual gilded cap like little Lord Fauntleroy. He looks nothing like a man with a hellhound on his trail. He looks immune to human dread, and you stare at the image in disbelief. Chronicle's only passage devoted to technique, Dylan credits Lonnie Johnson, quite cryptically, with showing him a guitar style that he says was more active, with more definition of presence. I had the idea he was showing me something secretive. Sonny Boy Williamson heard him play harmonica in John Lee Hooker's hotel room and told him, Boy, you play too fast. Blues harp experts might say the irascible Sonny Boy was being unusually kind. Robert Zimmerman's adoption of the name Bob Dylan is tied not only to Dylan Thomas, but in typically convoluted fashion to jazz singer Dave Allen, whom he otherwise misidentifies as a saxophonist. Apparently the why in Allen's name impressed Dylan before he encountered the Welsh poet. 
revealing in a tale that echoes Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin's insights about how blacks often provide whites clues to their own identities. He describes a dreamlike odyssey in which he leaves a San Rafael, California rehearsal session in complete dejection, only to wander into a bar room where an unnamed jazz singer and combo are performing. Dylan says, something was calling me to come in and I entered walked along the long, narrow bar to where the jazz cats were playing in the back on a raised platform in front of a brick wall. I got within four feet of the stage and just stood there against the bar, ordered a gin and tonic and faced the singer. An older man, he wore a mohair suit, flat cap with a little brim, and a shiny necktie. The drummer had a rancher's Stetson on, and the bassist and pianist were neatly dressed. They played jazz ballads, stuff like Time on My Hands and Gloomy Sunday. The singer reminded me of Billy Eckstein. He wasn't forceful, but he didn't have to be. He was relaxed, but he sang with natural power. Suddenly and without warning, it was like the guy had an open window to my soul. It was like he was saying, you should do it this way. All of a sudden, I understood something faster than I ever did before. I could feel how he worked at getting his power, what he was doing to get at it. I knew where the power was coming from, and it wasn't his voice, though the voice brought me sharply back to myself. I used to do this thing, I'm thinking. It was a long time ago, and it had been automatic. No one ever taught me. This technique was so elemental, so simple, and I'd forgotten. It was like I'd forgotten how to button my pants. I wondered if I could still do it. I wanted at least a chance to try. If I could in any way get close to handling this technique, I could get off this marathon stunt ride. This was revelatory, and I had that old jazz singer to thank. There was a moon out in space But a cloud drifted over its face It kissed me and went on your way The night we called it a day I heard the song of the spheres Like a minor lament in my ears I held the heart left to pray The night we called it a day Soft through the dark Notwithstanding his great work of the 60s and 70s, it's doubtful that the high degree of official recognition lately accorded Dylan would have occurred without the return to form he's displayed over the past 20 years. 
beginning with Time Out of Mind in 1997, followed by Love and Theft in 1999 and Modern Times in 2003. Dylan's creative rebirth has found him drawing deeply on showbiz tropes, dystopian visions, Delta Blues mythology, and the humbling advance of late Middle Age. In noting the unusual sound of Cecil Taylor's regular music, the mystical qualities of figures like Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk, and the controversy generated by Miles Davis and Bitches Brew, Chronicles offers its own observations, however unwitting, on the increasingly challenging and specialized nature of modern jazz. While the music's mainstream style is accessible to many listeners once they hear it, there's no denying that modern jazz is a formidable undertaking for most, one that generally requires a deliberate and determined approach to developing an appreciation for the music. Pop culture is increasingly rife with expressions of hostility to jazz, from The Simpsons to a Stephen Colbert editorial to the new Ryan Gosling movie La La Land, in which Emma Stone says to Gosling, a stoic young jazz pianist, I should probably tell you something now to get it out of the way. I hate jazz. So while it feels like open season, Bob Dylan tells us unequivocally in Chronicles that his creative rebirth reflects what that old jazz singer had to show him and what it can show the rest of us, too. and film footage on Bob Dylan, visit NEPR.net. Thanks to Katie Wright for production assistance. For Jazz Beats, I'm Tom Reaney. Standing in the doorway crying 
Foundation. <laughs>